And we are working our way through the book of Genesis. And let me kind of set the stage. Now today, uh, we're going to look at chapter 13 and 14. And here's how how I'm going to handle it. I'm going to kind of paraphrase the story, and we'll zero in and look at certain verses as we go. It's one of those chapters where there's a lot of names of kings and locations, and I'm going to try and paraphrase that, and then we're going to look at various verses as we go. Um, But let me set the big picture. Genesis is the story of beginnings. God creates the world. He gives Adam and Eve a perfect environment to live in, the Garden of Eden. He gives them one condition, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They sin. Sin enters into the world. Rebellion against God enters into the world And we see that they are cursed. They're expelled from the Garden of Eden. Their sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. In the same chapter, there's another murder. Lamech kills a man. And the world becomes so full of violence that God says, I'm going to destroy the world. I'm going to destroy these sinners. And he sends a flood to destroy the entire world. Saves one family, Noah and his family. But we see that there's even sin in Noah's family. And then the world becomes repopulated again, but there continues to be sin and rebellion. In fact, God says, fill the world, and they say, no, we're going to hang together, and they stay in Babel, and they build a city. So God has to scatter them by confusing their languages. So up to this point, uh, we see that man is not submitting to God. It's a sinful, rebellious world. In fact, the world deserves to be destroyed again. But... Rather than destroying the world, God chooses one man by the name of Abram. Later on it becomes Abraham. But God chooses Abram, and he makes him a promise. He basically says, Abram, I will be your God, and through you I'm going to bless you, and you will become a blessing to the whole world. In other words, I'm going to use you in some way to save multitudes of people from sin, right? You will be a blessing. Now, last week we saw in chapter 12, Abraham did three things. He believed, he obeyed, and he stumbled, right? Chapter, chapter 1, he believed in the sense that he could have, uh, he could have said, no, I'm a worshiper of the moon god, uh, forget you, I'm not going to believe you. He believed, and he becomes the father of faith, and we talked about how faith is uh, the instrument through which God saves us. Okay. Secondly, though, it wasn't just an intellectual faith. He obeyed, and he moved from, he up, upped his family, and he moved from Ur in Iraq all the way to Israel, the promised land. Okay. No, no minor move back then. So he believed, he obeyed, but then we see he stumbled. There's a famine in the land, and he goes down to Egypt, and he basically throws his wife under the bus. He says, hey, you're pretty good looking, and they're going to kill me, uh, so let's pretend we're brother and sister. And Pharaoh actually takes Sarah, or Sari, as his wife. We talked about the fact that Abraham is the father of faith. He is saved by faith. He's an obedient man, but he's not a perfect man. Now, today, we're going to take a look at at, uh, chapter 13 and 14, 
And basically, it's a two-part message. The first part is we're going to see Abraham grow in his faith. His trust in God becomes stronger. And we're going to take a look at three, uh, three uh, incidents in his life where we see him grow in trust. And then, in the midst of all this, we're going to see uh, a fellow by the name of Melchizedek who kind of comes out of the blue. And uh, as we read the rest of the scriptures, we find out that this Melchizedek is a, a very important person in understanding the scriptures. All right? So, first of all, let's look at Abraham's faith in God grow. All right? Uh, three incidents that happen. Now, here's what happens. After Abraham goes to Egypt, um, Pharaoh finds out that Sarah really is his wife. And he says, take her, go. And he, he gives Abraham tons of gifts and cattle and sheep. So Abraham and his nephew Lot are now rich. So they go back to the land of Canaan and they settle. And they're so prosperous that their herdsmen start arguing. They can't live off the same land. So Abraham says, hey, Lot, here's the deal. Go find a place to live and you choose. So here's, here's the first element where we see Abraham's faith strengthen in the land choice. He says to, to Lot, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, wait a minute. Abraham, isn't he the main character here? Isn't it God who, who chose him? Shouldn't he be the one who determines the best land? But he says, hey, Lot, whatever you want, you take whatever you want. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the Garden of Eden. Right? So the, the, the area down by the Dead Sea, if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, it's this dry, desolate, rocky area. It's a wasteland. It's, the, it's literally the lowest place on the planet. But that's because God destroyed it. Prior to that, it was like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. Okay? This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Now, we see a new Abraham here. We see an Abraham who, who says, hey, Lot, take a look at the land. You make the choice. And Lot, kind of selfishly, says, I want the best land. And Abraham's attitude is, whatever. Go ahead. This is a different Abraham. Why is he so non-stressed out about his nephew?" Choosing the best land. Because he's believing God's promise. What was God's promise? 
you're going to get it all eventually. Right? I'm giving you this land, and we find out from the New Testament that Abraham really spawned the land, the immediate land promise, that God was promising him the entire world. So Abraham, in faith, says, yeah, that's the best land. You can have it. I'm not that stressed out. Why? Because I eventually inherit the whole world. Now, you say, um, well, that's great for Abraham. I don't have that promise. Don't you? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is going to return one day and you will rule the earth, a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, and believers will inherit this whole planet, this kingdom. You go, that's great. I'm kind of worried about paying my bills this week, not my eternity. Well, don't you have this promise? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, tell you the truth, I was struggling with some financial things myself. Studied this passage, burden lifted. I want to challenge us to follow in the faith of Abraham and receive the comfort that comes from knowing that God's got you covered. Not an excuse to be foolish. This is not the health wealth gospel. But this is God promises to take care of us. Seek Him first and don't spend all your time worrying about money. It's a waste of your time and He promises that He'll take care of you and one day you will also inherit the earth. So we see Abraham grow in his trust of God you could say financially, right? The next place we see Abraham grow is in his war choice. First was the land choice. Now there is the war choice. Now, here's where I'm, I'm sparing you from reading all of, of uh, chapter 14 because it's really complicated with the names of all the kings. But bottom line, here's what happens. There are four kings from actually back where Abraham came from, the land of Mesopotamia, four kings are going to go to battle against five kings. These four kings do a raid down the eastern valley of the Jordan River, and they end up going as far south as the Red Sea, and they come up to the southern part of the Dead Sea, and it's four kings battling five kings. Big battle, big war. And the Four kings beat the five kings. And, most importantly, they destroy Sodom. Not physically, but they they beat Sodom. And Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his family get captured by these four kings. And the kings go up on the western side, on the west bank of the Jordan Valley, uh, and they 
They've, they've destroyed all these, these other kings. They've captured all the people and the spoils of war, and they're going back home. Now, if I were Abraham, I would say, well, that lot serves him right. My, my nephew, always a, he's always blundering. So, you know, he chose to go to, to Sodom. This is the consequences. See ya. Right? But here's what Abraham does. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So the the war was here. They started uh, to, to escape, and they went up as far as Dan, way north of the Sea of Galilee. And Abraham, who's living down here, He says, hey, 318 guys, let's go after them and try to rescue Lot. 318 guys against four kings who've just destroyed these other nations? That's crazy. The number 300 is interesting. You know, the the movie 300, which is about... um, the Spartans being willing to go against the Persians and forever the, the number 300 uh, is memorialized in Hollywood now. But prior to the movie 300 was the story of Gideon during the time of the judges when Gideon is called by God to call all the forces of Israel together, 33,000 of them. And God says, this is too many people to beat the Midianites. Did you mean too little? No, too many. Tell them if they're afraid that they can go home. And 22,000 or 23,000 say, see ya, and they leave. So he's left with 10,000. God says, that's too many people. He says, we've got to separate the men from the boys. How? Let them drink water down at the brook, and they drink water, and he separates by the way they drink water. And he's left with 300 guys, and with 300 men, Gideon defeats the Midianites. But before there was the Spartan 300, and before there was the Gideon 300, there's the Abraham 318. With 318 guys, he goes and defeats these other kings and rescues Lot. There is no explanation for this other than that he trusts God. He chooses to go to war against a massive army with 300 guys, 318 guys, and he wins. We see Abraham's faith in God growing. Okay? Now, he rescues Lot and the whole bunch of people from these, these uh, other cities. He's got all the spoils of war, and he's coming back down to his, his home region here. And the third area we see him grow in faith is with the spoils of war. The king of Sodom, who has survived this, has a little conversation with Abram. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. All right, let me have my people back, but all the spoils that belong to Sodom 
you can keep them. Millions, maybe billions of dollars worth of goods. Abram, you can have it. What does Abram do? But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and that's important because God owns it all. I've lifted my hand to him that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. Take your millions. Take your billions. I don't want people to give glory to the king of Sodom. I want God to get all the credit for making me rich, for prospering me. Again, we see a man of faith, trusting not in the things of this world, trusting not in the riches of others, but trusting that God will take care of them. Again, the application to us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Folks, where do you need to let go of the things of this world that are consuming you? Can you trust that God's got you covered? Or do you need to to grasp and hold on and sweat and worry about the things of this world? No, we need to be responsible. But there should be a, a marked difference between how Christians live in this world and how non Christians live in this world. We have a Heavenly Father who promises to take care of us. Okay? Can you let it go? Now, we see Abraham growing in his faith in God. Now, let me introduce, let's call this part two. You get two sermons for the price of one today. Now we're going to introduce Melchizedek. Okay? As Abraham returns from war, he said, he said no to the king of Sodom. I'm not going to take the spoils from Sodom. But he still has a lot of other spoils from war. And out of the blue comes this guy named Melchizedek. He's not introduced. We don't know anything about him. And three little verses right here. And Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, most commentators say that Salem is Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. So the king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So he's refreshing Abram and his 318 soldiers. And, here's the most important thing, he is a king and he's a priest of the God Most High. He's a priest king. And he is there to serve Abram. But not only does he serve Abram, he blesses Abram. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. Some guy named Melchizedek, we don't know anything about him. He's a king of Salem. He's a priest. Apparently, The scriptures approve of him as a priest. He's a priest king, comes out, blesses Abram. Abraham gives him a tenth, a tithe of all the spoils 
And that's it. We never hear from him again. He's mentioned here in the Old Testament and one other time in the Old Testament in Psalm 110. And you, you would figure, you know, this, this guy is no more important than any of the multitude of kings who was mentioned in this chapter. One of the kings, his name is Cheddar Lomer. Right? I, I think he's from Wisconsin. <laughs> Cheddar Lomer. Um, we, don't, we don't study about Cheddar Lomer. We don't, you, you would think that Melchizedek is not that important until you get to the New Testament. And there he's mentioned, not once, not twice, not three. He's mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews. What is going on here? This, is, this irrelevant little incident with Melchizedek seems to be a major theme in the book of Hebrews. Now, here's where I need you to pay attention. Because some of you are checking out. I can read you. Do you know that, that when I look out... You know how in cartoons there's little bubbles? I can read your bubbles. Right? And um, you, you shouldn't check out here. Because understanding Melchizedek is, the, is, is a key to understanding the entire storyline of the Bible. Understanding how the Old Covenant and the New, new Covenant fit together. Understanding who Christ is, and understanding that the scriptures really are intricately inspired by the Holy Spirit. In fact, here's my my plan of how to to encourage you to not check out. The author of the book of Hebrews is about to write about Melchizedek, but before he does, he says this. About this, about this Melchizedek, we have much to say And it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. And that word dull, really in the Greek, it means lazy. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, I want to tell you about Melchizedek, and this is great stuff, but you're lazy. And you don't pay attention, people of Hebrews, whoever received the book of Hebrews. Um, So to get them to pay attention, he insults them. If you're not interested in learning this, it's because you're spiritually lazy is what he's saying. So I thought that'd be a good tactic. If you are checking out and you don't care about Melchizedek, well, that just shows how spiritually lazy you are. (laughs) Reverse psychology, right? I want to learn about Melchizedek now. All right, so here's, here's where this all fits together. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Let's draw a picture. So back here, God makes this covenant with Abraham that through him he will bless the world. Now we know that Abraham has a seed, a descendant who is Jesus, who's going to die on the cross to pay for our sins. We see the big picture of how uh, Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? That's, that's point number one. This is an unconditional covenant. Abraham, you believe. Just believe. He believes, and this covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Okay? Now, um, during the time of this covenant, we're introduced to a priest king by the name of Melchizedek. He's both a priest 
and a king, all wrapped up in one guy. 400 years later, from the time of Abraham, God makes another covenant with the people of Israel. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's conditional in the sense that if Israel obeys the laws, they're blessed and they get to remain in the land of Israel. If they don't obey, they're cursed and they're expelled from the land of Israel. Abraham, unconditional. Mosaic, conditional. Now, under the Mosaic Covenant, God gives a bunch of laws and he formalizes three institutions. The prophets, the priests, and the kings. Now, a prophet could come from any of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. Somebody from the tribe of Benjamin or Asher could not be a priest. Only those from the tribe of Levi could be priests. And only those from the tribe of Judah could be kings. That's part of the Mosaic covenant. In fact, we see the first king, Saul, violate this. Saul's going to go to war and he needs blessing. So he, he needs a priest to offer a sacrifice and he's waiting for Samuel to show up. And Samuel's been delayed and, he, and Saul gets impatient. So he offers the sacrifice as a priest king himself. And here's what happens. Samuel said to Saul, you've foolishly, you've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Saul's downfall was he's a king and he messed with the office of priest. Under the Mosaic Covenant, priests are from the tribe of Levi, kings are from the tribe of Judah. Now, here's the big question when we get to the New Testament, the church. Are we believers in Christ under the Mosaic Covenant? Now, there are those who say that we are and we should be. And in fact, there, there are even those who would say that uh, the, the church will one day run the world before Christ returns and we should institute Mosaic law on the entire world. Okay, But just for the ordinary person in the pew, are you under the Mosaic covenant? Do you need to keep the laws of the Mosaic covenant? Now, if we are, We have two major problems. Problem number one, Jesus, who we worship as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, okay, he is a prophet in that he speaks God's words. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and he is our high priest. If we're under the Mosaic covenant, 
Jesus is disqualified to be prophet, priest, and king. Why? Because he's from the tribe of Judah. And if he tries to be a priest, he's disqualified. If we are under the Mosaic Covenant, Jesus has violated the stipulations by being both a priest and a prophet at the same time. Okay? In fact, the, uh, the author of Hebrews raises this concern. He says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. From Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And his whole argument is Jesus is our high priest. But he's from the wrong tribe to be our high priest under the Mosaic Covenant. So problem number one, Jesus is not the Messiah. And this is one of the arguments that Jewish people use. That Jesus of yours cannot be the Messiah because he's from the tribe of Judah. And the Mosaic Law says he must, uh, to be a priest, be from the tribe of Levi. He's obviously wrong. He's not the Messiah. And the author of Hebrews knew this was a problem. So problem number one, Jesus is disqualified if we are under the Mosaic Covenant. Are you following all this? Somebody say yes, okay? Because I put a lot of work into this. All right, here's another problem. If we're under the Mosaic Covenant, we're cursed to hell. Why? Because the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. And it required perfect obedience. As Paul says... In Galatians 3.10, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, of the Mosaic law, and do them. You're cursed. If you say, I want to be under the Mosaic covenant, here's the stipulations. You have to keep all the laws perfectly. And Paul says, you're cursed. So, Two problems if we are under the Mosaic Covenant. One, Jesus is disqualified, and you're disqualified. So what is the solution? The only way we have any hope, and the only way Jesus is qualified, is if we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. If the Mosaic Covenant is done away with, okay, And there's a new covenant that is in line with the Abrahamic covenant. And isn't that what we read about in the scriptures? We are under a new covenant. The old covenant has been X'd out. In fact, even the Old Testament prophets, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that a day of a new covenant was coming. And Jesus at the Last Supper holds up the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Right? Hebrews, this is a New Testament book, is quoting the Old Testament. And Hebrews 8.8 says, for he finds fault with them, with the the people under the Old Covenant, when he says, and now he's going to quote Jeremiah, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Now, under the old covenant, you were condemned for not keeping the law perfectly, but now you are forgiven. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's all based on the sacrifice of the new covenant, which is Christ on the cross. Now, yes, there were sacrifices in the Old Testament. All the animals pointed to the cross, but those animal sacrifices couldn't ultimately take away sins. We needed the blood of the new covenant. This new covenant, you're no longer under the condemnation because of the cross. And then he says this, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Then, in the book of Hebrews, it says this. For it is witnessed of him, of Jesus. Now, here's the second time the Old Testament refers to Melchizedek. The first is in our passage today in Genesis. But he's mentioned a second time. In Psalm 110, where the Messiah, where God speaks to the Messiah, and he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Jesus is a priest, and he is a king. Here's Jesus, and he's like this guy, Melchizedek, who was a priest-king, The old covenant is crossed out where priests and kings couldn't uh, have the same office. Jesus is like Melchizedek, a priest king. Now we see how it all ties together. Old covenant crossed out. We're back to the time of Abraham where the Messiah can be a priest slash king. And under this covenant, Your sins are truly paid for because of the priest-king. You see, what Jesus did as priest is he not only offered sacrifices, he was the sacrifice. He offered himself. Now, you say, this seems like the New Testament authors might be fudging things and rearranging things to make Jesus qualified. No. All the Hebrew author is doing is he's exegeting, he's he's explaining Psalm 110, an Old Testament passage that predicts that the Messiah will be a priest king. In other words, all along, God arranged the situation with Abraham and Melchizedek to be a paradigm of what Jesus would be like. And the Old Testament makes it clear that the priest-king distinction will one day be abolished. So here's, here's Psalm 110, a psalm of David. It's important that you understand David, the king, is writing this. The Lord, so, so David, the Lord God Almighty, says to my Lord, Now, wait a minute. David, who is the Lord of Israel, says to his Lord, the Lord God Almighty, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who's this other Lord? And most rabbis, even before the time of Christ, said that's referring to the Messiah. 
So, David says, Lord God Almighty is speaking to the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Oh, so the Messiah is a king. He has a scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Okay? So we've established that the Messiah from the Old Testament will be a king. No problem there. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Very complicated. Most people uh, who comment on that say, could mean this, could mean that. Let's not get bogged down by that. What, what you need to get bogged down by, though, is this. This Messiah, who's clearly a king, is also, in verse 4, a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, when Messiah comes, he will be a king-priest. In other words, when Messiah comes, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant is done away with. And the Messiah can be a priest-king. And it's good news that the old covenant is done away with because it condemned you. In the new covenant, our king-priest dies to pay for our sins. And we walk not in condemnation, but in freedom, forgiven, perfectly justified because of the king-priest. Now you go, boy, I'm not so sure I can follow all that. Whether you can follow it or not, you know what? It all points to the same thing. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. Trust in him and your sins are forgiven. Okay? But what this teaches is a number of things. One, Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. Two, we're not under the curse of the old covenant. And three, the scriptures are inspired, infallible, intricate, and incredible. That even this little insignificant thing with Melchizedek that happens in the life of Abraham is the key to understanding how the covenants fit together, how the scriptures fit together, how Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king all in one person without it being a violation of the minute requirements of the Mosaic covenant because that covenant is done away and we have a new covenant. Let's pray.